Hi, I'm Shaylee Shibaxi Ritchie. And I'm her co-host and sister, Kosha Baxi Karstens. Spoiler alert, we are sisters. And best friends. We grew up in the middle of Illinois, two little brown girls in a heartland farming community. We were certainly loved. We had lots of friends, but we never felt like we really fit in. We started to realize that there were a lot of people who felt similarly othered. And that realization was the seed for this podcast. Then, during the 2020 election cycle, we watched now Vice President Kamala Harris reclaim her power and story from Mike Pence. We saw what a badass she was, and we got inspired. We wanted to hear, share, and amplify the voices of everyone who has felt other. We wanted to give everyone a platform, regardless of who they are, who they love, or where they're from, to reclaim their power and their place, to stand up and say, I am speaking. Hello. Hello, and welcome to our listeners. Today, we are excited to bring you an interview with a very charming, very charismatic, I want to say young man. I'm not sure that he would appreciate that description, <laughs> but he's significantly younger than me. It's relative, right? Like it's all relative. When someone who's like 60 calls me young woman, it's like, okay, I get it. There was, I remember uh, Justin Long talks about his grandma on his podcast. He talked about his grandma who's like 101 and is in a home. <laughs> And was talking about like the young chickens, like or whatever the spring chickens, spring chickens, on yeah, floor, on her floor, and they're like seventy eight. <laughs> well, okay. So it is all relative, I will say. I will say yes, he is a young man. So our our guest name is Grant Hansen. He's out of he's out of Texas, but he talks so deeply and so eloquently about his challenges with mental health and substance abuse and addiction. And his start, you know, to now journey that includes so many rough patches. I don't want to share the whole story because then you'd be like, well, that's that. But it was, it was a little bit like being on a roller coaster. He doesn't talk about addiction and mental health and trauma separately. He's not like, now let's talk about my mental health and my mental health care. Now we'll talk about addiction the intersectionality among all of those topics was prevalent throughout from start to finish. And that I think is what made it feel like a roller coaster, right? Was that it was like, and then this happened, but then this compounded that. And you realize that you simply cannot talk about one without talking about the other. And Grant was really getting to also is, you know, talking about being a man, having to be a man. What does that mean? Male or um, was it toxic masculinity, toxic positivity with addiction, with mental health care, with mental illness, with trauma, with childhood trauma, you simply cannot talk about them in vacuums. Yeah. I think, you know, you really do get a sense for how entwined everything is. Um, and I think that is what makes listening, that's what made talking to him so intense because it was 
you know, he did talk about his, his experience, not as separate things, but really all of this stuff happening at the same time. And let's be honest, we do not experience our mental health challenges separate from our life challenges, separate from our family challenges, separate from our work challenges, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We don't compartmentalize them. We might think we could try to compartmentalize them, but really it all shows up. And our work influences our personal lives and our personal lives influence our mental health and blah, around and around it goes. And we really get the sense of just how interconnected these things are when you listen to Grant's story. Absolutely. And you're right. He was charming. He was kind. He was a joy to talk to. Yes. Please enjoy our new friend, Grant Hansen. He is speaking. I am Grant Hansen. My pronouns are he, him, and his, and I am speaking. Hi, welcome. Well, hello there. How are y'all? We are doing well. We understand that you're down in Austin, Texas. In Texas, we don't really have spring. Uh, I mean, we do barely, you know, but we have like, you know, pretend winter. How oh, you thought it was winter, but it's summer again, actually. And, you know, we go through all that. It's you never know in Texas. People think we're used to it down here, but it's it's 100 degrees. It's still 100 degrees. It's still hot. It's still fucking hot. Yeah. Um, are, are you in Austin proper or are you in like the suburbs? No, I'm a, I'm a, I'm actually a suburb kind of guy these days. <laughs> I'm not in the city guy. I, we love Austin. My husband's a musician. I am obsessed with bats. So because I did I did bat research. So I'm always like, oh, the bats are there. Like. I, I want to go in the dead of summer to see the bats at their like peak, but I also don't want to go when it's 120 degrees in the dead of summer. So. Yeah, that's uh, I don't know how you're going to work your way around that. <laughs> no, right, 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 right. Well, it's lucky for you, Kosha, that the bats don't come out at noon. Right. That's true. That's true. <laughs> like they don't, they're not like it's 110 degrees outside. Now it's a good time to fly around. No, they're like, they're smart. They wait till the sun goes down. Yeah, yeah they are smart. Yeah. Five degrees instead of 120. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Exactly. Uh, so Grant, tell us a little bit about yourself besides living in Austin. What else should we know about you? What else should our listeners know about you? You know, uh, the more I do of these and the more chances I get to like speak and and that you typically start with that, right? Like an intro, elevator pitch, whatever it is, like introduce yourself and you're supposed to list all these things off about yourself, right? And tell people about you. And, and I have to admit, sometimes I, I really, no matter how often I do it, I struggle with that. I struggle with like where to start, what's most important. Like, does it, do I, do I affect the way people perceive me based on what I start with, or, you know, that kind of stuff. And I always, I always like, when someone asks me to say something about myself, I forget everything that exists about myself. I just forget. <laughs> I was like, I don't have anything. I don't know what to say. <laughs> like when you're driving, you see all these wonderful places that you're like, man, I'd love to go eat there sometime. And then, and then when somebody asks you, hey, where, where, hey, where do you want to go? You're like, um, uh, talk about like, yeah, it's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. oh, you could think of like the most ridiculous things. All right. So let's try Let's, let's try this. We know you live in Austin now. Did you, did, are you from Austin? Did you grow up there? 
No, no. So I'm from Texas. I'm from Houston originally, right? So I, I grew up in, 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 in Baytown, which is kind of the east side of Houston, uh, Texas. A lot of oil plants over there, refineries, Exxon, Valero, Shell. Exxon's one-time largest operation in the world is right there. So kind of working working class blue-collar, you know, town. And yeah, that's kind of where I, I, I it's, it's home. I still, I still love it. You know, um, I grew up there, played sports, did all that. It's a weird place. There's there there's some like some money there because of the oil field, but there's also a lot of poverty there, you know. And so there's a it, the way the community was we all partied together, right? Like people from all sides of the tracks all really hung out together. And so I'll forever love that place. But I just got in a lot of trouble there ultimately. Um <laughs> had to I had to get out of there and and, and find a new opportunity. And sure. I took a lot of trouble, took a lot of a lot of problems and trouble before that happened, you know. Yeah. I, I get that. Do you have any siblings? I do. I have a, I have a younger sister. I have an older sister. And then I have some step siblings uh, as well. And your parents, I know that you said you've got step siblings. So one of your parents, at least one of your parents are married. Where are they? Yeah. Yeah. So my, my, my mother is actually right down the street from me in, in Round Rock. I moved her out here. She's in an independent living facility uh, down here. And then uh, my dad and stepmom are back back in Houston. Uh, on, on the con- they left Baytown finally, but they're still in the Houston area, the other side of Houston. So yeah, everybody else is all back in the Houston area, though. Yeah. Are you cl- are you close to your siblings? Um, you know <laughs> that's a weird question. Yeah, there have been. It depends when you ask me. There are times, yes. My my younger sister uh, unfortunately is struggles with the same thing that I went through uh, with and is in, active in her addiction right now and um you know so we're, we're we're trying to navigate that right now so i would say that no right this moment we're not the closest um me and my older sister we have a great relationship we don't talk super often but but i feel like uh at least on my dad's side you know we we, we do try to be, be be family oriented we have our dysfunction like everybody but but that is a, an important a big value of mine is family and so houston is like Close enough that I can go visit like when I want to, but it's far enough away that I can kind of be away from any of like the family drama that may or may not happen, you know? Oh my God, yes. I lived in Oakland, California for in that general area for almost 18 years. And I missed my family so dearly. I'm very close to my siblings and my parents. But once I moved back to the Chicago area, I was like, Oh, that's a lot of family time. And I, out of the four of us, there are four siblings. I was the only one local to my parents for a good several years. And so I was like, welcome home, bitches, because they all came back. So I'm like, I'm taking a vacation. For yeah, I got to share the load now. Share the load. <laughs> yeah. So what was it like growing up? Yeah. Yeah. So I so, saw, so I just got a, a disclaimer. I, I, I've heard multiple times now that apparently 50% of what you remember about your past past a certain age is actually not true. So I will say that on the front end, I'll just, I'll tell you how I remember it. I'm sure there are good members of my family who will hear this and be like, that's not how that happened. Uh, That's totally fine. It's my story. One of the interesting things about memory is that people can experience the same thing. And of course they are filtering it through their personality. Um, But people's memories are notoriously bad. And so a lot of what we think of as memory is the stories that have been repeated over and over and over again till we're like, oh yeah, that totally happened. Like we just assume that's true of everyone that we talk to. 
if one of your siblings want or parents wants to come on the podcast and and refute every story that's they're fine welcome. They're, <laughs> they, they know you you just give them my information I guess it's my way of kind of detaching from the, from the need to really, you know, people get so wrapped up in that identity of their story. It's like, yes, this story is a really important piece of me and obviously a huge proponent of where I'm at now, but I do have an identity that's bigger than that. And it's outside of just that story, you know? And, and, uh, and so I guess that's my way of trying of kind of like, well, it's like, you know what, most of what I remember about my story probably isn't even true anyway. So whatever, you know? <laughs> So, so yeah, no, growing up was, I, like I said, we, I had really good and some bad role models, you know, especially within my family, there was that dysfunction, but again, like, you know, I, I think of my grandparents, both sets of grandparents on, on my dad's side, my, my grandfather was, he had, you know, he ultimately died of Parkinson's and, and, and Alzheimer's and I don't really have that many memories of him well. Um, but I don't have bad memories of him. You know, I, really experienced a lot of that love from, from both sets of grandparents and just that, that ideal of what I wanted like my marriage to look like, you know, and, and like when I ultimately grew up and I, so I valued those things, you know, had a great relationship with my father. I really does not great to my stepmom and my mom, there's a lot of, there's a lot, there, and I intentionally saved my mom for last on that one, because there's a lot there. There's a lot to unpack there and just stuff that's come out later on and just my own intimate relationships. And, and obviously she struggles with alcoholism and has, and so we, we were kind of dealing with that like together at the same time, you know, clashing the codependency and everything. And so there was most of that was right there at home. But 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 I grew up in a family of teachers um, who all taught in or around the same school district I was in. So and my grandfather, the kind of the patriarch had been a football. He was the de defensive coordinator for the high school in that town. Not while I was in school, he had already retired, but but still the same school I went to. So. You, you, you can understand the dynamic that creates, right? It's about his reputation and everything we do falls on him and how it makes him look and, and that. Can, but you know what? He himself was not like that. He himself did not care about that, okay? It was only the rest of the family. I never felt, I never got that from him. I never felt like, oh, you made me look bad. If I got in trouble, when I overdosed, when I got kicked out of high school, when I literally got expelled from high school for, for the, for theft, you know, when those things happened, my grandfather was involved and not one time did I ever feel, how could you do this to our reputation type of thing? It was always like just confusion, but I think he all just intuitively knew like, this isn't right. Like, this isn't like just a behavioral thing. Like I think he knew something was wrong, you know, and I felt that love. And so I just grew up with this sort of everything I did was all about reputation and how we looked and, and sweeping things under the rug and, and never actually really dealing with act the issues or resolving any issues, nothing like that, you know? Um, and, and so I, I didn't learn how to do that until way later. And I still struggle with, I bet the, the, the results of that I, are still manifesting themselves in my lives in different ways, in my life in different ways. But like I said, I never went without. I didn't want for anything. I personally, just my own speculation, I feel like as a family unit, we were kind of house poor. I feel like it was kind of keeping the Joneses. Like, I feel like we looked like we had some things, but I feel like really like we did, you know, it was just for show. I feel like money was the reason we couldn't do things a lot. Well, that and that sort of like being, like you said, being house poor, keeping up the Joneses, that is a 
part of the reputation thing, not just like, don't nobody get in trouble. Nobody make us look bad, but also like, look at us, right? We're doing great instead of, um, things are a little tight or things are a little tough or like you had to keep up appearances no matter what. Exactly. Especially when you're like a religious organization, like a church, but, uh, but I was an athlete. I really held on to that. I, I was a competitor and I still am a competitor. Um, and my, my plans ultimately were always to play baseball. Like I love sports in general, but baseball was my, was my band. Actually, I play baseball again. Now I play for just a little independent league here. When people would ask me, Grant, what's your, uh, like when they would say, what are you going to do? Like, what do you want to do? I want to be a professional baseball player. And they'd say, okay, well, in case that doesn't work out, what's plan B? And I'd be like, <laughs> plan B, because that's going to work out. Like what I learned later, I just, I was, uh, I was intelligent enough, like naturally and physically, like, like uh, athletically talented enough naturally that it made me like really lazy. Mm, I've heard that a lot. You could skate by, yeah. And I did that. I just skated by on that because I could get these pretty good grades, not even really doing homework and just, you know, I was fine. And and so I didn't put in that extra effort to really like hone those skills. And so, yeah, you know, just growing up with that, missed those opportunities. Shortly after that, in the middle of high school is when everything started to kind of uh, spiral, leading to rehab episodes, prison, felonies, that all that all that stuff ultimately happened at a very young age. So walk us through, it sounds like grade school was, elementary school was fine. And then you got into high school and there was kind of, it was fine for a little bit. And then when did things start to sort of go to sideways or downhill, right? When did the trouble start? Well, the, all, all, I mean, all, all, always there was the dysfunction there with my mother. My mother struggled with alcoholism from a young age. So I remember from when I was young and and so there was a lot of that, you know, my parents divorced at a very young age. You know, I have a note here that your mom had, has had struggled with alcoholism. If that was a part of your growing up or whether that came later, but it sounds like it was a very active present part of your growing up as a child. Of my life, of me and my sister's life, but nobody else's really, because she was like a functioning alcoholic. You know, my family may get mad at me for airing the dirty laundry, but it's, I don't care. It's my dirty laundry too. And really ultimately there's a lot of families out there going through this. Empathy is like my, my curse really, because I feel so strongly for my mom. I, con I constantly put myself in her shoes and I like go over her life just in my mind of what I know of her life and how events have progressed. That that alcoholism wasn't so apparent, right? Because she was what we would again refer to as a functioning alcoholic. She was getting up and going to work and, you know, there wasn't like mom's passed out drunk on the floor and we don't know if she's alive. We had a couple of those times, right? There was a few times that that happened, just like a couple. Well, let's be clear. I have in my younger days also had a couple of times where I was like, okay, no more. For a while as opposed to oh i just overdid it now but now i need to dial it back to whatever however many beers or however many shots or whatever it is that allows me to keep going right right she was sometimes would get nice and friendly when she was drunk most of the time depending on how drunk she would go kind of go the other direction and there's a few friends i did have that came around often enough to where they got to be exposed to some of it and they were like oh dang because again she kept up appearances on the outside well 
some is like people didn't believe it because I was a little troublemaker too, right? So it, it, in some ways, I'm sure it looked like I was trying to put past the buck, you know, like, well, this is what's really going on, right? And I'd be at, in, at school and I'd be like, well, this is what's going on at home. And they'd be like, Mrs. Hanson, really? And so nothing ultimately happened really about that until I was about in seventh grade. Um, and that's when some members of our family came over and uh, got me and my sister. We went to stay with my, my grandparents for a little bit while my mom was going to, you know, engage in services. And we ultimately decided to go stay early with my dad at that point. And I stayed with my dad. My sister went back to my mom's because she, she basically bribed her into coming back. Um, and we, we were kind of split in homes from that, from that point on, you know, up, up until I got in all my trouble and, and, and kind of took off. From that point on, my relationship with my mother was, was very, but at the same time, she enabled me. She like, when I, I was spiraling down in my worst, she was the one ultimately who would end up letting me back in the house, you know, like, but it was a super toxic game of like, she would let me come home, but then like, she would maybe know that I had a traffic warrant out for my arrest or something. So if I like pissed her off, she'd be like, I'm calling them, you know, one time they actually caught me, man. I, I was hiding in the bushes outside of the cops. They were searching. They flashed a light and got me and arrested me in front of her house. And then she tried to come out and be like, 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 oh no, wait, wait, wait. It's just, it was crazy. It was crazy. You well, you know? use the word toxic and that yeah. sounds like there was a lot of toxicity enmeshed in your relationship. You almost have to laugh. I'd be like, how crazy is this, right? This is my mom, like, this is happening right now? This is happening right now? Really? Holy shit. My mom just called the cops on me. There's many nights I, I probably would have died or something would have happened to me if she hadn't let me back in the house, you know, or put money on my commissary when I was in prison answer my phone calls and she was the one who was there doing that stuff more than anybody when those things happen you how do you reconcile those and so now i'm at a point where thank god i got well when i did because then things really spiraled for her later on and and uh, ultimately i don't i don't know that my family would have known because her situation was so complex that even i had a tough time finding resources for her and i have resources all over the country in the mental health space and uh, I've just, I've developed, I've had to work through some kind of resentment because I'm 30 now when all this really happened and I kind of assumed the responsibility for some of her affairs. And I was like, kind of resentful about that. I was like, dude, I'm too young to have to, I don't even have my shit together yet. Like, how am I supposed to manage your finances? There's just been a lot of rapid growth that's, that's, that's had to happen uh, out of necessity. I want to loop back around and talk about when things started to get bad. It sounds like there was stuff going on the whole time and there was a lot of conflict um, with your mom. It went from like bad to like really bad. So, so tell us a little bit about that. Different kind. It was a different kind of bad though. Cause when I was young, it was a different kind of thing. Like where was, Cause before the drugs and alcohol I was super just depressed and sad. The whole family situation, you feel stuck and you just trap, you know, what do I do? When I got to high school, at first, right, it was great because like now I got a little more freedom. Now I'm meeting people. People are like, you know, I'm getting invited to parties now. And it's like, okay, this is, this is, this is fun, you know? And it ultimately, it, it became my like escape, you know? And everybody's like, has their own reasons for why people get started using and why people keep using and how people become addicts and all this, right? But, but really I just, it was no more complicated than the, the friend groups I was hanging out with. I was already naturally just kind of rebellious. 
And the friend groups I was hanging out with were like, hey, man, that's what we're going to do. You want to come do this? And I was like, yeah. And they didn't even know that I hadn't done it before. Did you feel like it was peer pressure at that point? Like, or were you, you were not pressured. You were just like happy to go along. That sounds great. Yeah. I just, I, you know that dopamine rush when you're like breaking the rules? No, I have no idea. I've never broken <laughs> a rule. <laughs> you know, is smoking weed even like as fun if it's legal? You know, I don't know. That age, there wasn't like everybody's like, oh, I was seeking to escape this and escape that. And and certainly there was probably some element of that. But when I was with my dad, things were much better. Like I, I really enjoyed living with my dad. You know, he didn't micromanage me and have his thumb on me. And maybe he should have a little more. I got in a little bit of trouble. And so things were better as far as my home life because he was married to my stepmom. Like it was a much more stable home life for me, which made a lot of difference. Okay friends in that neighborhood too who went to school with me so yeah th those first couple of years of high school with the party and I mean it was it wasn't always problems man it was there was a lot of fun I had a lot of fun in those first few years trust and believe so that was gonna be that was gonna be my question actually is when does partying and recreational use turn into addiction that's, that's I think that's different for everybody you know like but for you for, for me, for a person like me, okay, I want to emphasize that I was, and I'm, I don't feel like, I don't feel like I'm this way now. And I feel like it's because I was this way then. It was just so stubborn, so unable to learn from other people's mistakes. And so uh, just in, not, in complete disbelief that really any of these consequences that people talk about would ever actually happen to me. Like, I thought that one day I would just be able to shut it. I would just be like, oh, you know what? I'm just going to turn the partying off now. It's that day. I got to, it's, it's adult o'clock. And I thought I was just going to that one day. And I was totally delusional about that. When I started to get to this point again, got in a lot of trouble. I wouldn't honestly change most of it. It was, I had so much fun. I have so many amazing memories getting in all that trouble. But really, you get to this like three, there's like three stages of it for me, right? There was like fun, then there was fun with problems, and then there was just problems, you know? And uh, when it gets to that problems kind of phase, you know, first we had the fun with problems, and that's what happened with a lot of like kids, younger, younger adults even, their parents are going to intervene and be like, wait, hold up, where this gets worse, we need to get try to get you some help. And sometimes that's effective. Sometimes people get help in that phase. For me, that wasn't, that, that was not me. I am the type of person even still to some extent, I have to feel like it was my idea. You know, I can't feel like I was coerced into it. So that all those times when people were trying to coerce me into treatment and coerce me to get help and coerce me into this and that, I just was not, mm, not well, I find it really you know? interesting that even now you're using the word coerce instead of like convince, right? So like an intervention would not have worked for you. They did actually, they did. I did, I did have like two separate interventions that both were successful really because I was just put in a situation where I didn't have a choice, but, but deep down, I don't think I ever actually intended on following through with what they were asking me to. It was more of a like, I'm going to do this to kind of get out of hot water. Get you off my back. Yeah. So everything's cool, you know? And it wasn't until like something totally different has to happen. You know what I mean? It can't be just like people around you telling you these things and crying and reading these letters and you're just like, oh, I want to get sober now. It's something much more internal. It's something much deeper than that, you know, that where you just have this, this moment. I mean, it could be brief, 
And I, and I say that for a reason because because we, we we tend to find that when when people have these like moments of collapse, like pure collapse, man, it's so crazy how fast the ego will reconstruct itself after after something like that if you don't act upon it rather quickly because your mind starts to convince you that you overreacted and it really isn't that bad. You know, that was the case with me. We see it all the time. You know, um, people call for, they're begging for help one day. And, and I'm like, man, if we don't get them in that day and try to figure it out that next day, they're like, eh. I always say, you know, I talk about, and this is not true just in addiction or mental health or anything, right? It's true with any set of choices that we need to make with our life whether it's uh, I want to pursue a new job or I'm ready to meet somebody and be in a relationship or whatever it is, people have to get to their own pain point. When does it, when does it hurt you? Not when does it hurt other people, right? Th that's sort of the, the you know, sort of idea of rock bottom, which is other people's rock bottom, other people's pain points. I can beg and plead and whatever it is, but that's my pain point. Right. And what you're saying, like, it has to be your idea. You have to say, I am ready to change now, instead of other people saying, it's time for you to change. But until somebody hits their pain point, their personal pain point, it's, it's not going to stick no matter what you do. That these sort of big life changes require internal motivation and nobody can want it for you. Rock bottom does not necessarily mean bottoming out. Rock bottom can be fleeting. You have a moment of this like clarity of rock bottom, but you bounce back real quick, right? Like, you know, your ego then goes like, oh no, it's not that bad for me. Those guys, those guys need help. It's not that bad for me. So a buddy of mine went to a conference recently and, you know, I've gotten into some public speaking and been able to share the stage even with some other folks who have some pretty crazy stories, you know, and and I remember he was, he went to this little conference that he invited me to. I didn't get to go, but one of the guys speaking had invited me to speak at another thing. And he was speaking. My buddy was telling me that his, his, like he was, he was telling his story, his like pain point where he just decided to change everything was like when he flew home from the airport from or flew home on, and he got to the airport from some like trip and he looked around and a bunch of people had spouses that were meeting them and his wife wasn't there. Like that was this guy's rock bottom. You know, and I, to, to some extent, like what is rock bottom? And I say that because I do, I have like a, a visceral reaction to uh, the overuse of cliches and, and one-liners. I, because I feel like uh, sometimes they just lack depth and sincerity. Like I hear people say sometimes, oh, we just hasn't reached rock bottom yet. I cannot tell you how much that pisses me off. <laughs> Because we create, now we create this, this, uh, diet, this narrative in people's minds who are going through this that like, they think they have to be like the homeless junkie under the bridge before they're finally ready to get help. There's like this misconception that to address my mental health or address this, uh, this addiction issue I have or whatever it is, that the only way it's viable or justifiable to do that is if it's like gotten as bad as it can get. Like, why would I ever be proactive and like stop it from ever getting there in the first place? You know what I mean? That right there for me is that's true wisdom, you know, but it's so hard if you haven't been there yet. It's so hard. I think that just to go back to your original question, that that pain point for me, it's hard to go back to 22 year old Grant, you know, and think about that moment then. I mean, I remember that moment very, very clearly, but 
for me personally, was a moment where you realize like, man, I really want to make an impact here. And if I died right now, my life didn't mean anything. Nothing. And they talk about the two deaths, right? The, the first, when you die, and then the last time somebody ever mentions your name. I have things to do here. And you think at that age, because I was, I was still young. And I think now, I, don't, I didn't fully appreciate then how insane it was that I was going through that stuff at such a young age. And trust me, I know people have gone through much crazier things at much younger ages, right? It's all relative. But I finally just came to this realization that like, Time is passing. Time is moving. I'm getting older. I'm going to prison one time. Grandparents are there waiting for me. Second time I go, hey, my grandfather passed away. He wasn't there waiting for me when I got out. Right. You start to think about these things and you're like, man, one day I'm going to be in here like one of these six, 50, 60 year old guys. And I'm not going to have anybody out there answering my calls or putting money on my commissary right now. At least I still have that. Right now, this seems bad, but right now, this is just a glimpse of what my life is about to turn into long term if I don't. And I remember the first time I ever went to jail, I was in a little city jail for a traffic ticket. And I was talking with there was four, three other guys in there. And I was telling all these completely lie stories about all the things I was doing. And this dude stood up from the bottom bunk and he looked over. He's like, youngster, he's like, you think that shit's cool, man? He's like, all that stuff you're talking about. He's like, you think all that's like, that's what you want to do? That's what you want to be? He said, you better take a look around and you see where you're at. He said, I promise you this is what your life is going to look like if you keep doing that shit you're talking about right now. And when I actually got went to prison, prison, he was one of the first people I thought about. I was like, man, that, that bastard was right. Profit, profit. But it was just, you, you have those moments and now, now I'm 30, right? I'm still, I'm, I'm young. I'm not an old dude, but but you realize that like 30 turn, turns into 40 pretty quickly. It turns into 50. And especially when you have a child, nothing that makes it as obvious that time is passing super quickly as watching your child grow up in front of you. I, then I feel a sense of urgency. Like this is now an emergency because I'm not guaranteed tomorrow. And so if my, if my, if what I want here the most is just to make an impact, right. To like for my life to have actually meant something like I don't have much. I mean, I feel like I've accomplished that to some extent, right. But not to the scale that I want to. So that was my, my, my pain point, right? That I really craved living a life of some kind of purpose and meaning. And I was completely unable to do that on my own. And I had, to, I had to ask myself, why is it that no matter what I do, my life continues to get worse? You know, that's a really humbling question when you finally go, okay, at that point, right? The, the idea of mentorship and sponsorship, and those are very, very important things in my life. And the only way I was ever going to change because it could, my family and those people who I didn't feel like understood me was, was one thing. When I was finally confronted with a man who I was fully convinced had been where I had been and was not there anymore. Only then that I saw evidence that it was possible that I could not live like that anymore. You know, cause I met him. I went to treatment in 2008, nine in, in Kerrville, Texas. The first time where I met him and a few other people, and then I dipped off and went to prison and all that in the meantime, and I got back to Kerrville, and he was still there, and he was still sober when I got back there. And so for me, that was all the evidence I needed, because that was it, right? It wasn't that I, that I, it wasn't that I didn't want to do it. I just didn't want to put all this effort into something that wasn't going to work for sure. 
Like, why would I waste all this time and energy? That would have hurt. That would have been like the ultimate failure. Like, at least if I don't try, I can at least just be like, well, I didn't try. But if I try and try and put all this effort into this and that still doesn't fix me, then what? Then what? I have this vision of what I would like my life to be like. I, I can go do the difficult things if it's worth it in the end. And I think, you know, that's, I hear that in, in your story too, which is like, but this guy was still there and he was still sober. And I was like, no, it's possible. It is worth it. Yeah, that borrowed confidence, you know, that borrowed faith. I had to just borrow, borrow the hope that like, if, if, if he it was how I am and now is not, and he's telling me this is how he did it. I have nothing else to go off of. Like I have to go off of that. You talked earlier about not really having a lot of role models growing up. And the, the people who you saw were, were addicts and partying and, you know, your friends are doing all of this, getting in trouble, fun trouble, whatever it is. And you didn't have, what does that look like? What does success in this type of situation look like? You didn't have that until you saw this guy. And I think like, no matter how stubborn we are, you have to be able to see like, and no matter how internally motivated we are, you have to be able to see what is possible before anything can change. Absolutely. Absolutely. You do. I, I, most people are like that, but you know, there are now, now I feel like I've, I, I, because I've seen the, now I have evidence, right. If things change when you get evidence, right now I've tried and I've put into practice, I put into this, the, the scientific you know, method, man, I, I, I tried it out. And I got it. I got a result. And now I got faith that I'm not so afraid of failure anymore or the idea of failure. I don't attach the same meaning to failure. I don't have the same emotional reaction uh, to it or the, the idea of it. You know, it's it's more just like now, like before I would attach it to if I tried something and it didn't work, it didn't bring because like it would be about the result. Right. And if I try one path and I didn't get the result, I would chalk it up to, well, I'm just not good enough. I'm not going to be able to get this thing. But now I know better. Now I know that it's possibly just the path. You know, maybe now I just need to try a different path and we're just going to keep trying different paths. You know, and then at some point, uh, you know, you have to, if, if you keep trying that and it, and, it, and it continues not working, you have to have a conversation with yourself. Is this something that I really feel passionately that that is the right thing or is it time to pivot you know that's another important question i don't know i don't know if that i have the answer to that well, you know i don't think any of us have the answer to that but what what you just described about trying and trying and trying something different is like my entire experience of parenthood <laughs> so i've got two children they're so different uh one just graduated eighth grade and one just graduated fifth grade um and they're they're like night and day and so the stuff that works with one doesn't work with the other. Uh, the older one is so different in personality to me that I would try stuff and it just wouldn't work at all. Like parenting is absolutely a leap of faith. And like, no one tells you what to do. Totally. Did you leave the hospital and be like, are y'all really about to just let me walk out of here with this little human? You feel like you're doing something illegal. I felt so unqualified. I was like, I was like, I feel like I should have to get some kind of certification. Or like, Shouldn't you have to take some kind of class, like something? You have to take a test to get a fishing license. You should at least have to take a test to pass 
whether you're going to be able to take your a baby home or not. Thank you. <laughs> All right, here you go. I, and I was really curious when the kid came into the picture um, because you're talking about you know, all this trouble starting, the sort of legal trouble starting around 22. And how does your, your child fit into all of this? And, you know, was there any motivation there? Like, how, did, how does this fit in with the bigger picture? Right. When I say go back to going back to 22, that's, that's when I got sober. I was 22, almost sober. The legal trouble actually happened prior to that. In 19, when I went to prison the first time, and then 21, 22, when I was in prison the second time. And they got sober just after that. So I didn't have, we didn't have her until I was almost, uh, no, I'm sorry. I would just gotten a year sober right before we actually had her. So I got to Kerrville in 2014, July, um, started seeing her, her mother, uh, shortly after that. Uh, and to be frank, we did most things that they always tell you not to do, you know? Um, and, uh, and we, and we made it, thank God, you know, because I, it just at that time, it was, I knew it was number one. Like I knew my life was on the line. I had reached that point where I was like, I am not going back the way I, the way I just came. It's not happening. Absolutely not. And at that point I decided that I was like going to do whatever it took. And, and I, 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 you know, people always ask me if my daughter had played a part in that, right? Like, what do you think you would have could have done it if you didn't have your daughter? And that's, that's, uh, how do you, how do you know that? How do you answer that question? You know, like, I don't, I don't know. Like I have, I've seen plenty of people get and stay sober without having kids. So I imagine I could have done that. And there are plenty of people who don't get sober, even when they have kids or that they have kids. Right. That has nothing to do with it. Right. People, the logically, it seems like it should you know like it but it's counterintuitive you know and maybe even for a short time it can have that effect you know it can have that short-term motivation but that's not sustainable long term you know what i mean because you're talking about mental illness <laughs> you know motivation is not a cure for mental illness and so man i need to write that down somewhere what do you say motivation cool. i'm writing it down right now motivation is not a cure for mental illness this is recorded right okay so y'all heard it here yeah, yes, exactly. That's a t-shirt right there. That's a t-shirt. Yeah, it is. That is. All right, guys. We just look at man, this is a mastermind. <laughs> I'm trying to do a mastermind real quick. Look at that. Hold up. Well, you know, you'd actually I can compare it to the same thing I talked about earlier, where I was I, I was talented enough naturally, athletically, that I, I rested on that, right? So people will go through an event like that and have a child or something super just life-changing and inspirational. And then they 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 ride that emotional reaction from that right and they just rest on that and they're like well because i'm feeling so good about everything i'm not going to do this work that i really still need to do right so then it becomes a temporary band-aid and we talk about this now you know i, I talk about this a lot you know in the world of in, in the clinical world right because there's always this big kind of sort of friction I, I think between the clinical world and like the 12-step world you know because it's like people are like you can't you can't prescribe like spirituality for to you have to have both you have to have a combination of both there's something you can get from professional clinical work that you can't get from just peer support and there's something much deep like really deep that you can get from real peer support that you can't get from that professional relationship you know and to to, to just say hey we're going to remove the substances from your life and teach you coping skills 
that's not like sustain. That's not real change. That's that's temporary, you know. And and, and I, I'm, I'm going back. To, I'm bringing all this back to my daughter, right? Because because I knew it was not not the mo- it was not like oh this is enough motivation to keep me sober. It, it was this is enough motivation to keep me extremely active in the work I'm doing so that I can stay sober. And then right because it even evolves from there. Now it's no longer I do this work to stay sober. Now I'm doing the work I'm doing because I've identified goals and visions that I have for my life and not just for my life, but the legacy I want to leave for my daughter. I'm starting to develop these things as I dream about my life. And so then I start to identify, well, what type of person do I have to be to be able to accomplish these goals? And so then I identify the work that I have to do, right, to become that person. So now the work I do is actually attached to a vision of the future, right? Now the work I do now is not is not attached to running away from this thing from the past. Certainly that is an element that still always will be there, right? Uh, playing in the background, but but it's just a non it's not a, it's not an issue anymore, right? Like for for a, a, a moment or a period of time, yes, you have to use that to propel you forward. But eventually, right, the the goal should be to get to a point where now. You're, you're, you're crafting this vision of what you want your look like and that's in life to look like and it's pulling you, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I wanted to mention two things, right? One is that if you replace, if you just get someone to disengage their substance use and you, they'll just find something else. But there are so many, particularly so many stories about when people, um, when lap bands and gastric bypass surgery and everything was becoming really, really sort of mainstream, people who were very overweight, they lost a lot of weight. They can't eat as much. So they can't use food as a numbing substance or a distraction or anything, but they found other things. People who used to eat a lot became alcoholics. They became shopaholics. They, they started gambling. They started having affairs. It's Right, so that motivation, you can't just take away the thing and say, okay, well, now you can just move forward because the thing's not there. It's, it is what you were saying, which is I need to figure out where I'm going and have, have that internal motivation of like, look, if I keep doing this stuff, I won't be around for this amazing thing that I have planned for my life. Like, this is where I wanna go. And if I keep doing these things, I won't be here for that. Well, and this is a really good, what you guys are saying is a really good connection to talking about mental health, right? Because, because what I think we do a lot in this society is separate recovery and sobriety and addiction with mental health. Uh, I was just at a gala a few months ago and Rob Lowe was a speaker and he's, you know, very open about his recovery and sobriety. And he talked about like really needing therapy too, right? Like you can't just be like, oh, I'm, I'm going to stop drinking. I need therapy and group therapy to like keep you honest and keep you accountable. And the question is, you know, there are people who like, for example, Chris Cornell is it's, I'm still devastated by that loss. And he was an addict. His wife really talks about the addiction, but doesn't want to talk about the depression. And almost I've, I've heard a lot and read a lot about, um, 
the glamorization of the addiction and the sobriety and recovery, but, but almost like brown bag, bottom shelf, put it away about the mental health. You clearly have made that connection. I mean, I just don't know that <laughs> it seems to me, I guess I forget I live in this, in this bubble, right? Where I spend the majority of my time around other people in the mental health space, right? Who would just understand this stuff, you know? And so it's crazy to me that like people still separate the two things. And even in our industry, we still do, you know, like it's, and it blows my mind because I don't, I don't really find many people who struggle with substance abuse who don't also struggle from some other mental health comorbidity, right? I wouldn't say the other way around. It's not, it's not the case and vice versa. Um, but a lot of times, and this is a lot to do with insurance and, and the way all that works, but we rush to diagnose. We really rush to diagnose people without spending much time with them. And this is our, this is, and I'm speaking to professionals because this is our, our duty as, as professionals, right? And I'm, and I'm saying this for an accountability check, really, and people need to know this, people need to be aware and people need to, to know what the standard of care is and know what their options are, right? Because we have to start moving away from ideology and going with the actual, actual science and data. And so to treat one without addressing the other, we see people come into treatment all the time right? Coming off a fresh, a fresh meth bender and a psychiatrist wants to diagnose him with bipolar. What? By no means, I'm an autodidact, right? I don't have a degree. Um, I have a diploma and have a lot of lived experience and just a lot of, I have a lot of, uh, of, of knowledge just of, of, you know, psychology just from being in the industry, but I don't have a degree, right? So it's, it's it can be hard sometimes for me to speak on some of this stuff, but it just seems super irresponsible, when I look at that, because, because now, right. What I, what I found whenever I got diagnosed, right. And prescribed some, some stuff. And when I was in prison, I went down to the library and I started doing a little bit of reading. And this is where I started to kind of find out that for a, a host of these diagnoses, there, the recommendation that I kept seeing was like to spend, you know, at least three to six months observing somebody, right. And their symptoms, and the frequency of those symptoms and all these other right metrics that you have to measure before you can really make a truly accurate diagnosis. And we bring people into this world and treatment space and all that and diagnose them in a week, you know, without spending that time with them. And that's such a, a disservice to me. That's such a big deal. That's such a big deal uh, that we don't talk about it enough. The mental health stuff for me, really started to come out later after I had been sober for a little while. Let me ask you a quick question. Cause I realize we, we started talking more about professional work rather than personal experience. And we haven't asked you what you do. Well, all right. So I'm a male stripper. Uh... <laughs> you know, I truly believe that strippers ha have such a window into like people's psyches. Absolutely. Like when, when people's guards are really down, that's when you really see who they are. They're healers, man. You know, they're healers. And therapists, I think. I think they're <laughs> therapists in some way. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. To quote Magic Mike, anyways. Uh, I, I've been, so yeah, I'm in the mental health space. I have an entrepreneurial drive, right? So I have my hands in some other things as well. Uh, I just love, I love business. I love entrepreneurship. Um, now I have really found a really cool way to blend that love of entrepreneurship with, with my love and passion of, of mental health. Cause there've been several times over these last few years where I've considered completely exiting the mental health space for a little while, at least periods. And I actually did for a little period of time, you know, just there's burnout associated with it. We all know that, you know, 
particularly when I think being involved on the business side. So you're kind of in this dual role where you're like, you're trying to help people, but you're also having to run a business, right? That can be tricky. And if you're, if you're an empath, compassion fatigue is, is real. It's hard. It is. It is. I, I thank God I can kind of, you know, we can kind of separate and make sure we delegate the right roles to the right people. So that way there's that clinical kind of objectivity, you know, uh, where the same people aren't having to talk about finances or talking to them about clinical stuff, right? So they can feel safe in that space. So unfortunately I have to be that guy sometimes, but, but it is what it is. Um, but, but just to get to where I am now, you know, my, my experience up until, up until this point has all been in direct care type facilities, like treatment facilities, hospitals, that type of stuff. Um, and I kind of transitioned over into the tech world, right? Where I got my uh, good friend of mine, John, who's uh, one of the co-founders of this platform, this company called Recovery Club America. We actually have two separate companies. We have a parent company called American Recovery Partners. And within that, we have two separate companies. And one is a, a digital platform, an app, that anybody can download off the off the either the app store or the google play store right and it's a social media style platform it's got a whole ton of, of of mental health resources like access to individual therapy content games and challenges subgroups right our community partners coaching etc cetera, etc cetera. uh we're, we're live in like half the country so far we're going to be bringing on virtual med management so there's a lot of cool stuff there uh a lot of really great resources that we think are going to just completely blow uh, blow companies like BetterHelp and Talkspace out of the water. I think we're doing much better than what, what, what they've got. And then the other side is just kind of a concierge style in-home detox program that where we actually take providers and go into people's homes and do medical detox uh, within their homes. So that's live in Tennessee at the time of this recording, at least about to be live in Texas. We kind of have to go state by state just for licensing stuff. So, so yeah, that's, that's kind of where I'm at now. I'm in the tech space. I'm not really attached to a physical facility. And so I'm getting to learn a lot, uh, getting to learn a lot there, but I see this is a huge opportunity, a huge space and a huge gap that needs to be filled, especially with COVID and, and talking about, this is a huge piece of this conversation and a huge mission of what we're doing with Recovery Club is just engagement tools. That's what it's all about, right? People really, you focus on on all these on all the things like you know like you know going to 12-step meetings going to meetings going to you know going to therapy seeking all these professional services and doing all this stuff but but like the thing is is that like for all the in-between right all the little like gaps and crevices right we have to find little other ways to keep people just as engaged and plugged into that process as possible in between the therapy sessions in between the coaching in between all that because what we know from the from from the data is that if we can keep people engaged for at least a year or more, the chances of them staying sober long term go up by at least seventy percent. Um, so that's yeah, that's 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 what we're doing, and, and we're really we're really proud of what we're putting onto the marketplace. So this, I mean, this is really fantastic. The application in real life of connecting mental health with addiction recovery support services, and then sort of wrapping that in with larger support, engagement. Hey, we're here for you. We don't, you can get onto this app or you can, you know, you can engage with us. That doesn't have to be about like, I'm really struggling today, right? It can be any number of things. 
it's a it's a holistic approach, which is really fantastic because people don't live their lives in little sections, right? It's not like you're like, well, now I'm sober, so I'll never have to deal with that again. And now I can deal with my mental health issues. You know, they're just so, everything's just so tied up together that to, to deal with them one by one by one is, I want, I don't say, I won't want to say pointless because they do have a point, but it's, it's, it's a slower and, and can be a regressive process instead of holistic. For me, it was a rude awakening because I did really have the delusion that once I got sober, they like all these other problems I have would just go away, <laughs> you know. I think a lot of people. I mean, isn't isn't that a lot of people? I th- I think so. I mean, I, I also think people who go through therapy think, well, once I do my mental health work, once I do my work, it'll all go away, and I won't have to. It'll be fixed. You know, Doctor Nicole uh, Lepra or Le- Doctor Nicole Lepra or Lepera, however you I don't I forget how you pronounce her last name, but she wrote uh, How to Do the Work, and it is. I'm still in the middle of it, but. Uh, Oh, man, she actually started following me on Instagram and liked a couple of my things. I was like fangirling out. I was like, because ah, I just I love her work, man. She has to, but she talks a lot about about this, about what we're talking about right here. And she puts in a real, real terms that you, anybody can understand exactly what it is that we're that, what we're talking about. And, and the delusion that I had there, I mean, I got and I had never really been like a, a suicidal you know, person. But man, I, th- I think about four months after I got sober within that time frame, man, I got super depressed, right? Because all these emotions started coming to the surface and all these unresolved things that I've been kind of just pushing down and masking. And, and now I'm like writing all this inventory and bringing all this stuff clear to my, to the forefront of my conscience, you know, and you go through this process and you're just like, wow, I've got a lot of stuff to clean up, man. I've got a lot of stuff to clean up. Right. And then you start to, then you start to see, okay what's my baseline now, now that I don't have these substances in my body. And, but you know what though, what I realized too, is that like, just because I'm going through some emotional stuff and some mood swings, doesn't automatically mean that I have like a mental health issue either. You know, that just means that like, Hey Grant, you know, you've been using substances for a long time. And now, now you're, now you're just a sober human, which means you get to experience the same range of emotions that all all other sober humans get to experience. And you know, it's like, I, I think it's so funny, not funny, because I do understand that what we go through is different, but we applaud each other for just doing what everybody else has already been doing the whole time. You know, like, man, congrats on like finally being a decent person. <laughs> so I work, I work with people um, who suffer from schizophrenia. Some of the meds that they use for people with schizophrenia, they can cause some weight gain. But also now the person with schizophrenia is not delusional, paranoid they're eating, they're eating instead of being like, oh my God, you're trying to control me or you're trying to poison me and not eating. So you actually have to help them realize what are proper things to eat. You can't just eat whatever you want all the time. You have to exercise, you know, like there's, there's the stuff that quote, everyone else has to deal with on a daily basis that somehow now that we have this person medicated, it just is like, get swept under the rug yes that that i'm glad you say that because that brings up such an important issue for me is it like what is our goal here is our goal just to help people get to baseline or is our goal to help people like learn how to thrive like and actually thrive and like what can you do now on this earth if you actually really address your mental health and got it under control 
not that we get to pre predetermine what your goal should be for you. I think we do that a lot in our world too. That's a whole other tangent I can go off on. Um, you know, we, 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 we presuppose for people what's best for them. You know, I don't think in any, most other areas of medicine, we, we do that, right? You, you have patients in a lot of other areas of, of medicine. Typically the process is a specialist will sit down and give you a range of different treatment options and ask you which option you would like to go with. And they may give you their recommendation. And one of those options could even be to do nothing. And that's totally fine if you, that's what you choose to do. You know, we don't really do that in the world of addiction. We, we, kind of, we kind of predetermine for people what their destination should be. And we also, we also, if someone has diabetes, you're not like, okay, now your diabetes is under control. So just do whatever, like, or just now, <laughs> now I'm done with you, right? Like they're still expected to like contribute to society now that their diabetes is under control with addiction. It sounds like, and with mental health, we do not expect that. We don't push for what is possible. We're just like, well, they're, they're controlled now, quote controlled. Well, but, but I mean, would you, would you agree though, that it's to, to some, especially in the primary mental health psych world, because I had to do some research for a business plan I put together on just the numbers and how many facilities and bed count and that kind of stuff, like for the population. And I mean, I knew it was an underserved population, but man, man, beds per, beds per, uh, you know, to, to population ratio for primary mental health, it's, it's like a fraction. It's not even close. And so I feel like a lot of that is due to lack of, just lack of you know, understaffing, lack of resources. I mean, how can people who are working with this community depending on where they're working, how can they even have the bandwidth to like try to, like all they have the bandwidth to do is help these people get back to baseline. They don't have enough bandwidth to like spend that extra time other than the ones who are just like that passionate about it. They're just gonna do it anyways, you know? And there are people who, who are like that, thank God for them. But if we just have better resources and better funding, you know, that's a whole bigger issue there. But we just, we don't, um, and we get the same thing applies to the prison population, the criminal justice system. You know, it's, it's, it's all the same. It's all the same thing. We're funding the wrong things. Yeah, it's very much, can we get you to not be doing the destructive thing as opposed to, can we, can we help you stop doing that thing, but actually be productive in some way, however that means, you know, whatever that means to you. We talked to a therapist recently who works primarily with the Latin, Latinx population in the West and South sides of Chicago. And she was saying really, really similar things, which is, yeah, like you can get coverage for people for mental health services, but you get eight 30 minute sessions and then that's it. For people who have multiple issues going on and have complex trauma and are also sort of victimized by the system for any number of reasons. They're immigrants, they don't have the language, they have, you know, they they have some sort of issues with the law. You can't deal with that in, in eight 30 minute sessions. What is it? It's like like tears in a hurricane, where it's like you just there's just no effect of it at all. Yes. So so you know. <laughs> This this reminds so so my 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 partner is again one of the co-founders of the of the app recovery club. Uh, he he was we were having a conversation about this because he he's originally he lived in in Colorado and he got in a lot of legal trouble out there and he had warrants out there for a long time. 
And he, you know, through all of our work in the addiction space and, and all that, he, he ended up getting to be on uh, uh, some documentary. I forgot, I forgot which one it was, but when he finally went back to Colorado years later to address all this legal stuff, he, I remember him telling me the story and he was basically saying that the judge just decided like, Hey, you know what you've done? So like you, you were on a documentary, like, wow, we just want to make an example, like what a story you have. And, and it sounds really awesome on the surface of like, man, what a success story. But I was like, bro, isn't that crazy that that's the bar, like that you have to be on a documentary before they're finally willing to like dismiss those charges. Yeah. That's insane to me. Like, what you know what I mean? Like well, that's what that's what we're telling everybody else. Well, hey guys, you know we'll give you another chance if you end up on like TV because of your life story, you know. But like, what about everybody else who's not going to become a motivational speaker? You know, who aren't even going to work in the treatment industry? The people who are just going to go become regular members of society and do other things in other industries and just be in recovery. And it, it it's just there's a lot. There's a lot. Uh, there's a lot because I've been in prison. You know, and I've been in these institutions and I've seen it from the inside and there are places that are doing it better. Right. There are there are counties like where I live now. They're a lot more progressive now in how they're handling mental health and addressing it from a criminal justice standpoint. You know, not treating it like a behavioral problem, not treating it like a criminal issue and just looking at just the economics of it. You know, how much money we're spending on housing these people and tax dollars every year versus what it would cost to actually treat them and get them well. And you're just like it makes so little sense that you're just like, you know, you're just like, is really nobody having this conversation right now? I used to work in um, homelessness services and the organization I worked with focused on the chronically homeless. So that, you know, the individuals who were the hardest to house, they usually had, you know, multiple situations going on, mental health, substance abuse, maybe they were coming out of prison, domestic violence, like all kinds of things. They were generally very resistant to being housed. But the only way that works is if you do wraparound case management services, where you not only get someone in the house, you teach, you know, you get them to their doctor's appointments, you help them get go through whatever recovery program they need to. And it's none of that stuff is contingent on like housing isn't contingent on not using, which a lot of organizations or a lot of approaches would be like, first you get sober, then you can live somewhere. And it doesn't work that way. You live somewhere and then you actually have a little bit of headspace to deal with the other things going on. But the stat that always stuck with me is you're talking about how little money we spend toward prevention and, and treatment and the, how much we spend on just like, housing people and like dealing with the problems that come with, you know, people being in prison or people having mental health or substance abuse issues. So this organization can house and provide services for one individual for $17,000 a year. It's probably a little bit more now, but it was $17,000 a year. In the previous, you know, in that same time period, there's one individual in the city of Chicago that cost the Cook County Hospital, $1 million. That does not include all of the police services, all of the public cleanup services, all of the jail, all of the public nuisance, whatever you wanna throw out there. That one dude cost the hospital system, the health system, a million dollars. Okay, so we can give people lives and we can help them 
lead whatever, whatever sort of whatever their vision of the best life is, right? Or we can spend millions upon millions of dollars to let people languish and we get nothing for it. Right. We pay for it either way. Right. And around here, we talk, I talked with the sheriff here, you know, and I remember him mentioning to me, he was like, it was a lot of not in my backyard syndrome. It's a lot of that. Yeah, it's not that they don't want the resources. Nobody's going to be like, yeah, they, those people don't deserve help. You know, they're just like, just not really like close to here. You know, if you could put that like out somewhere else where they can go, it's like a far away from here, you know, because people attach and that's what drives me so nuts is that people attach just the, 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 the idea of mental health and mental health issues and diagnoses with crazy. They just attach it to crazy, right? I want to normalize that. I want to, like, we have to work on normalizing, right? The fact that most people, especially in today's world, whether you want to attach a diagnosis to it or not, it doesn't matter. In fact, I believe that's actually pretty counter counterproductive a lot of times. And people run around talking about, and they use the words like depression and anxiety and ADHD and OCD and those terms, they throw them around super loosely and they post about it. And, and I'm struggling with this today and, and I get it. And I'm not going to like get mad at them, but that's a little irresponsible. That's not the, that's not I will, the, I, I will I'm just going to cut in here because I, 100% agree with you. And once I started working with people with that treat schizophrenia, I, I tried very hard to take the word crazy out of my vocabulary and people go like, Oh my God, I'm super schizophrenic right now. Like, you're, no, you're not, you're not schizophrenic right now. Like you, just because you have a lot of things going on at the same time, you're not hearing voices. You're not like, that is not happening. What I will, I just want to to be clear though, I, I agree that our brains are stronger than what we give it credit for, but I have to say that there are, there is a lot of power in a diagnosis. And this is, I, I, you know, like we might be coming from different sides of the same coin, but I think that especially with something like a bipolar or a schizophrenia, something like depression, if there's a chemical imbalance, right, then, or a biological atrophy of the neurons or something, we need to get a diagnosis because we need to get the resources. And sometimes medication is the only way to get some clarity. Absolutely. But what I do think is we can't rely on a diagnosis and that there is a lot that a person can do to to help their that that brain stability absolutely no i'm totally with you this is the same as diabetes right why why is this going on oh diabetes is important i need the meds to manage my diabetes that also doesn't mean that you don't have to do your own work right. to eat well and exercise and like and i think sometimes people do think well, once I'm on the meds, that's it. I won't have to do anything else. And that's the answer. And I also agree with what you're saying, which is it's gotten really trendy to talk about having, oh, I'm so anxious. Oh, I'm depressed. No, you're sad. You are sad. Something crummy happened in your life and you're sad. Your dog died. You're not depressed or you're situationally depressed. You're not don't have chronic depression. You're really sad. That's a normal well, response. That, that there's a difference between feeling depressed and having depression. There's a difference between, right? Like feeling anxious and having anxiety. Absolutely. 
Exactly. Yeah. I, I just I completely agree with you because I, you know, again, my good buddy John, he he talks about this a lot because same situation. He didn't find out that he was actually on the uh, autism spectrum until like like last year, you know. And so for him, that was like, oh my God, it explains so much. That was like an answer for him. He was like, holy shit. Now I understand so much about what I have been dealing with, right? So like I completely 100% agree because now you have that starting point. What I'm more talking about is, um, well, going back to what I was saying earlier, when people give out, hand out irresponsible diagnoses, you know what I mean? And they, in psychiatrists, you go see a psychiatrist once. I mean, literally I talked to a psychiatrist one time and within a 15 minute conversation, he said, oh, well, you're probably struggling with this. And why don't we prescribe you these meds? And so like, so people will get that and they'll have one doctor or psychiatrist one, one time tell them that they might be suffering from this. And they just take that. They just attach themselves to that and they run with it. They're like, well, this guy one time, like, well, what, you, you, even like you, you look at our admissions lines, right? When I would work at treatment centers, you can go back through the calls and we always ask people, do you have any other diagnoses that we need to know about? And a lot of times people would be like, oh yeah, I suffer from this, 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 this. And we'd be like, okay, well, are you taking any meds? Have you been formally diagnosed? I can't tell you how often people will be like, oh, well, no, I actually haven't been formally diagnosed ever. Well, and, that, and then I think also people then can, and we know people have used that as like an excuse. I, I act like this because I have anxiety or, you know, my psychiatrist said I struggle with control issues. So that's why I do this. No, just because someone has diagnosed you with something or someone has told you about some symptoms of something that's supposed to give you then the tools and the to go get the resources to then help you yeah it's, it's like i mean i may hurt some people's feelings here but it's like when people say that about like zodiac signs you know they're like hey man i'm a i'm a i'm a tourist that's why i behave that way i'm like come on man or when people in recovery say well hey, you know i uh, i stole shit because i'm a i'm an addict i'm like no bro you're a thief i'm sorry you know what i mean you didn't lie because you're an addict you lie because you're a liar <laughs> you know you, you can't attach the two. Yes, they certainly have some overlap there, but no, man, these are separate things that have to be dealt with. You know what I mean? And, uh, but people love to, to attach. They're not mutually exclusive, right? No, they're not. <laughs> no, they're not. Or, or one doesn't, one doesn't um, wipe out the other. Oh, well, now you're not an addict. So whatever you did while you were addicted doesn't count. Yeah, those character flaws aren't still there at all. <laughs> you know, it's the same thing in mental health. Oh, well, I've been diagnosed with anxiety or I've been diagnosed with chronic depression. So whatever I do gets chalked up to that. I don't have any responsibility in how I behave. You know, again, I don't want to make this a victim, like a blaming thing where people are like, oh, well, you, you should just get yourself out of depression. doesn't work like that either. Yeah, right, right. I, I have asthma and I always say to, you know, and my people who say like, well, my brain should work. And I was like, yeah, my lungs should work too, but they don't. And, and am I going to not take medicine because my lungs should work? Or am I going to try and breathe? And mental health is so much easier to be like, think your way out of it. No, you can't think your way out of things, but you can change the way you think about things and change the way, change your behaviors to support your mental health. 100%, 100%. No, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't agree more. And uh, it's, it's, again, you're, like you said, it's meant to be a kind of a starting point, right? This is where I can start from. But, but it just, when people, 
and I don't, I don't, I don't, I, maybe there was a time when I was like this too, but I can't really fault, you know, the people who are seeking help because you, you're going to these trusted professionals and they, and, and they tell you these things and you're, you just assume that like, because of who they are, they're just telling you the truth, you know? And that's just a good, that's the ugly side of the, of the, the medical world and the behavioral health world is that there are tons of providers out there who are not ethical providers and they're not going to give you good information, right? And they're just going to write you scripts and all that stuff. And, uh, or they, or they think of themselves as like very separate from the, the psychology therapy, you know, counseling side, like it is my job. And I've run into those people. Like it is my job to medically treat you it is not my job to talk to you. But ethically, I think that most, at least the most good psychiatrists that I know have some really good therapists that they work very closely with and they refer back and forth to. Because if you're going to be on medications, it just makes sense that you would be engaging in some kind of therapy as well. I mean, to process that, all that, because you're not, most psychiatrists are not, they're not doing therapy. Mm-hmm. You're there. Exactly. Write the script. See you later. You know, 15 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's no more than that. Um, so yeah, it's just now being in the entrepreneurial space too, really it's, it's, I'm, uh, that's why I love it so much because coming from 12 step and kind of that into like the entrepreneurial space and getting into more of the personal development side of things, there's just so many parallels there and I fell in love with it. Um, you know, and I've now gotten to meet a lot of really successful people who really talk heavily about that they, they credit so much of their success now to the fact that they were willing to actually address their mental health uh, stuff in the beginning. They were like, oh, there's no way I'd be where I am now if I didn't get serious about addressing my mental health. Um, you know, people take that, people take it so lightly. They take it as a sign of weakness. They don't want to talk about it. It's taboo, you know, and, and I don't, um, again, I guess I, I know that I'm fortunate because I do exist like kind of in this bubble where I just, I've created this space for myself, even on my social media platforms where I've just, now people know Grant is the guy, I'm in recovery. I speak about sobriety and mental health and people just know that, right? It's just not a thing anymore, but not everybody has that luxury. They're not surrounded by people. They can just talk openly about those things with, you so know? I want, you, you, you've been giving me great segues here the entire time. Cause you just said something about how people don't feel like they can talk about it you know, they feel like it's weakness. There's a lot of stigma. Um, and there's so much information out there now about how this not wanting to talk about it, keeping things inside, keep staying disconnected from all of the stuff that's going on, your mental health, your emotional health, um, and the changes you might want need to make to sort of thrive that's that hits men a lot harder than it hits women right there's we've seen all of these well i don't know i would say all of these but there are definitely articles and studies out there that show men suffer from loneliness at such high rates that leads to earlier deaths for them it also leads to more violent behavior there's so much stuff that um points to the importance of men engaging in emotional and psychosocial work and they don't do it so can you talk a little bit about your experience with that what keeps you know what what are the factors that keep men from going there even 
Yeah, that's a, that's a topic that I get to talk about a lot. And you guys mentioned earlier, having done a, a lot of episodes around fighting gender norms and that kind of thing. And I think those two topics go hand in hand uh, for me, right? And, and this topic of what men can and can't do. Or, or, and, and again, I want to I wanna do, I, I do want to preface this by saying that I, I know for a fact that men and women both suffer from their their own sets of very gender specific issues you know when it comes when it comes to all things but especially men, you know and with men um you know Brene Brown honestly I love I love a lot of what Brene Brown talks about the, uh, this because she did she did talk a lot about how she didn't used to study men she only studied women for the longest and uh and when she finally started studying men it was because uh, this event happened where she was at a book signing and a, and a man came up to her and, and, and asked her to sign this book for her, for his wife and, and daughters. And he did only had daughters. So he was the only man. Right. And, and he, he basically confronted her, not like in a mean way, but just was like about why she didn't research men or something. He, she asked her a question about men and she said, I don't research men. And he said, it wasn't that convenient. And she was like, what? And he said, you know what? Let me tell you something. He said, you see those, you see my wife and daughters over there? He said, those, those ladies in my life, they would rather see me die on my white horse than ever fall off, ever. Don't give me this bullshit about this toxic masculinity being passed down by like the coaches and the dads and like the men in, in our lives because the women in my life have been much harder on me than the men in my life ever have. Like I just needed to hear that so, so badly because that is 100% the truth for me. It has never been the men in my life. And I'm not saying that's the truth for all, for all men out there, right? But, but from my experience, and a lot, I think a lot of men experience this, is, you know, you take, just let's take dating into, in, into consideration, right? I hear a lot now, and I got to connect with a, with a, with a woman who, does, who coaches divorced women in the dating world. And I did a podcast with her, and we talked about this. And the whole subject was men and vulnerability, in the dating world, women, a lot of women that I meet that I've, that I've gone on dates with and stuff, they'll openly talk about how they really, they want a man who's emotionally in touch and, and vulnerable and can share their emotions. They say that, but then when they actually find that, they don't really know what to do with it. And it's almost rejected. It's like, whoa, you know, hold up. I've never had a, a, a man who was willing to be that open with me about his emotions and flaws and darkness, you know, all those things. But for me, it just became a thing where I will, I absolutely refuse to spend my life, not just with my intimate partner, but just the people in my life in general, with people that I cannot go below the surface with. Like, if I can't let you know the deepest, darkest parts of myself, it's really hard for me to even want to, like, maintain that relationship in a serious way. And so for, I think, a lot of men, it's, it's not the fear of what other men are going to think, you know? It's, it's the fear of like, 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 what does that do to like this facade I have, right? We walk around with these, our puffed out chest and this kind of stage character and, and, and we, that's what we do. We operate in stage characters all day. And I take on this from a father for a little bit, then I'm Mr. Career Man over here for a little bit, then I'm Mr. Fitness Man over here and Mr. Spiritual Man, meditation, all that over here and, and all these things. And these are all roles that I take on. You know, and, and I really have to get deep down into who, what my identity is. And when I can realize that's much more than just masculine, feminine, you know, it's much deeper than that. Then I don't, I think you can now, it's no longer men's mental health. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's much, it's much bigger than that. And I, I don't know, it makes me really sad 
um, when you realize, especially growing up, I remember male role models in my life, men like me, you know, I, I grew up where there's plants, right? Exxon, like these, like these are tough men working on these plants, right? And, and you just, you, you have this, this image of, of these men and just they're strong and you think that like they don't cry and all this stuff and you grow up and especially when there are family friends and stuff like that, you start to hear things and hear stories and you find things out and you're just like, your whole perception of what you thought a man was or a manly man is supposed to be is just completely shattered, you know? And you're like, what, what does that even mean? What does a man have to do? What does a woman have to do because she's a woman or because he's a man in a relation? You know, I, I hate that type of language. There, I feel like there are certainly some gender roles that for sure are useful and serve a purpose. You know, it's not that black and white. And I'm actually getting ready to start a podcast myself. And that's exactly what it's going to be called. It's not that black and white. Um, and so that's the thing. It's not everything. Most things I think exist on a spectrum, right? It's not that all gender norms are terrible or bad. They're useful in some ways, some of them, you know, but there's a lot that are super, super limiting. And, uh, and I have a daughter. By no means do I want to raise my daughter to think that all she's meant for is childbearing, you know? Well, and, and gender norms, if people align with them, if, if you're a guy that wants to be that kind of guy, great, you can be that kind of guy. But the enforcement of those things, when that's not who you are and how you want to be, right? It's much, and, and it's much more, feminism at least has pushed that envelope so far that like don't force a gender norm on me some women do want to stay home have children raise families be you know sort of manage the home and hearth some women don't want any of that and there's a lot of stuff in between and feminism has pushed that like don't tell women what to do that let them choose for themselves and that's what i feel like we haven't made that kind of progress on like what makes a man what does masculinity mean it's the same thing as trying to divine femininity there's actually no real thing like that it's just people being people thank you right but what do we what do we where when how are we going to start letting men break out of their boxes and just be who they want to be and be able to cry and be able to be vulnerable and be able to say like you know what I need to take a break and work. I want to raise kids for five years. You go back to work, right? And and that it doesn't mean anything about anyone. It's just what people are doing. Well, you know what? This is something I'm just gonna because again, we talk, we keep talking about this, and I'm gonna quote uh, a buddy of mine posted this on LinkedIn one time, and I remember it really just it stuck out to me. He was talking about um, the, the the system at that moment, but he was saying that uh, personal responsibility and systemic change are not mutually exclusive, you know, that both things have to happen. And so this is my call to men. Um, if you are continuously surrounded by people who are not allowing you or holding that space for you, um, at some point, and this goes for men and women, honestly, right? When you continue it, and this is something I think a lot of us understand, when you continue to have those people in your life and it's just the same person with a different face, and they're not holding that space at some point you have to say okay 
you know, what is it that I have to do differently now? I've got to make some change because I'm the common denominator. And if, if, and once I made those changes, once I got bold enough and brave enough to just make those changes now, man, I'm surrounded by tons of that hope where people say, you know, you're lucky to have a few good, fr you know, close friends in your life or whatever. Like, man, yeah, sure. I've got my circle of like super tight friends that know everything. I mean, I got a lot of really good friends now and I got a lot of really good friends that I trust people that I can call with all kinds of intimate information and that kind of stuff. And I think that that is, especially for men, men have to be able to gather together. But, an, but another thing, just through the 12 step process, right? When we were going through these group inventory processes and I'll tell you what, it was really cool to sit down and do some of these group inventory processes, not just with another man, but with women too, to get female perspectives, like, like real female perspectives, right platonic that are around male issues for me has been super valuable allowing myself to be vulnerable in that way with a woman that's not my partner you know to because it's a little embarrassing almost you know like when i carry myself this way and i have this image on social media and when i make my video content i try to be vulnerable and throw some of that in there so people know that i'm not just trying to have this facade of being this macho man whatever but I, but, but honestly, it creates fear. I create fear with it, like for myself because I'm like, have I created such an image for myself now that like when people meet me, am I going to, am I going to measure up in real in person in real life to what people think I am on social media, you know, as a man, like when women meet me or if I'm going, you know, it's like, it's a concern. Do I, am I going to like, do I maintain the same energy that I introduced you to, you know, um, so, you know, it's, it's, but it goes for both. It goes for both. Yeah. women. I have to make those changes. And then, and then the people that I want to attract are going to be there, you know? Absolutely. You know, we, so we have talked about addiction, recovery, sort of toxic family environments. We have talked about, you know, sort of legal troubles. We have talked about mental health. And it's and a holistic approach to mental health. And now we just talked about vulnerability and creating a community for yourself, regardless of who you are, where you identify on the gender spectrum of creating a community that will allow you to be vulnerable. And yet also sort of being like, how do we keep ourselves in boxes, right? That's a lot to cover. So when I ask you this question, uh, you can talk about anything you want. But the second to last question we always ask everyone is, what advice would you have for someone who is in your position, is in your, you know, kind of where you are now or where you were as a kid or anywhere in between as a professional, as a, as a, as a human being, um, anything that you want to talk about, what advice would you give them? I know, I know it's a lot. Yeah, no, trust me. I definitely was prepared for the question. I definitely, uh, I, I got, uh, I looked, I, I, yes, I looked at the question and I've been, I just been thinking about it. Right. Cause it's like, you always want to give like the super profound answer and you're just like, what, you know, what do I say? But because I, I went through some really like, um, I, I, just some mental health stuff that I didn't really talk about too much that went, I, and I totally forget it's just cause I forgot. Um, but I went through kind of an episode of depersonalization disorder right and a, a huge characteristic of that was very existential in nature right where i really started to be hyper focused on like the passing of time and just the concept of eternity and my importance in this place you know just and i got a little nihilistic about things to be honest with you 
But, but to bring that back, there's this never ending just tape, right? Just this playing in my subconscious that you don't, this is not a dress rehearsal. Like, and I know that you hear people say that all the time, YOLO, you only live once, you don't get another chance. But it's like, if you really internalize that and you understand that like this moment we're in right now at 8.53 p.m. on June 7th, or at least my time, 8.53, it's never gonna be 8.53 p.m. on June 7th ever again. Uh, you know, I can, and I, 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 a role model of mine talked about this. I remember him saying, he said, wake up in the morning. He said, when you wake up in the morning, you go to the same job you've been going to. If you can sit down at your desk and look at your surroundings and understand that even though it feels routine, you've never actually been in that space in that moment before. You know, it's a brand new moment in a brand new space, really. And he said, if you can touch that, if you can really touch that, on a daily basis, how could you not have a new energy and a new passion to bring into what you do every day? Because it's a new moment. It's not the same thing, even though it feels that way. You know, so that's just my biggest really piece of advice is no matter what it is you're doing, just understand that and, and your goals are your goals. My goals don't have to be your goals, but just understand that you have a much more limited amount of time to accomplish those things than you think you do. Um, because tomorrow's not promised, you know, and I would add to that, that when you do that for yourself, I think you have to be equally as intentional about helping other people figure out how to do that too for themselves and be a part of that process and giving back, you know, learning from somebody, but also being a teacher at the same time. I think having both of those roles at the same time at all times in life is super important. That's really great advice. Um, yeah, that's really, really fantastic. So thank you so much. But this idea of like, it's not an idea, it's a reality. Right. It's a reality that we don't live in, though, day to day, moment to moment, which is nothing is ever promised. There's no next minute that's promised to you. Um, and you're never in the same place twice ever. Right. So make the most with the time you've got, because we just don't know. And and don't just make it a hashtag like that. I mean, I think I took that from you, too, is like, yeah, we say it nothing's promised, you know, we don't know what tomorrow's going to bring, the YOLO hashtag, but like, what does it, when you internalize that and you make it not a hashtag, um, you know, what does that mean? So that's awesome. Uh, our, our last question is, all, it's, a, it's always funny. So can you give us some examples of your family act? So, you know, I was really thinking because, uh, God, that's, that was a, yeah, that was a tough one. There was, there was one word and I say family, 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 is that, is that saying that right? Family, yes, yes. My friend group, um, it's more of a, tra a tradition, I guess. I was trying to think of like words and phrases that we, that we use. It wasn't so much that, but we actually all play. Have you, have you guys ever seen the movie Tag? Yes. They actually all, these group of friends once a month, one month out of the year, every year. Yeah, so we actually started doing that. There's a group of us. Uh, that all live in different states that uh, a couple of months out of the year, we all, uh, we all play. I'm not, I'm actually it right now. <laughs> yeah. So if you say like, you're it, that does mean something different for you than it does for other people. Yes. Okay. So if you're talking about specifically, we also play the game. I'm about to, I'm about to teach you guys the game. If y'all don't already know what the game is, you guys heard it's just called the game. All right. So we actually also, all right, so, so the game is just, it's very, it's kind of stupid, but if you look it up on like Urban Dictionary, the game is just, you lose uh, when you think about it. The only way to win the game is to not remember that you're playing it. 
And once you've thought about it, you've lost, and then you have to immediately tell somebody else that you've lost the game, therefore making them lose. But isn't that like telling someone not to think about like pink and orange zebras, and then that's all you could think about? Yeah, yeah, right. So it's like we'll text each other, and you won't even say like the game. I'll type like I'll type thug, aim, you know. That is family. That is hundred yeah, yeah. percent family. Or you could be like, well, I lost. Yeah, right. right. And then someone would be like, oh, now you made me lose too. <laughs> oh my God. Okay, that's, that's funny. super fun. That's good. That's fun. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much for spending yes. this time with us. You're vulnerable. You were honest. And that's all we can ask for on uh, yeah. during these conversations. And I mean, thank you for trusting us with your story. You don't know us from anyone really. And so the fact that you came on our podcast you're willing to trust what we're doing and you really shared stuff that maybe you, you know, other people might not want out in the world. They wouldn't tell those stories. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Absolutely. I enjoyed it. You guys know, you have no idea how uh, really boring some podcast hosts can be. <laughs> you guys have been amazing. Oh, well, thank you so much. Yeah, no, the, the vibe was immaculate from the moment we hopped on the call. Thank you. Oh, that's so awesome. I'm so happy. That's to a hear great that. compliment to us. I'm in Chicago. We got to grab a cup of coffee or something. Uh, too. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Have yeah. a wonderful uh, night. Thank yeah. Thank you. Bye.